So tonight, we're jumping back into the series that we were in for the last several months, actually. We took a two-week break, uh, but now we're back. And uh, if you're just joining us, what we've been doing is we've been in a series called Best Story Ever that gives you the Bible at 30,000 feet. Um, so raise your hand if you've been on an airplane recently. Anyone been on an airplane in the last several months? Yeah, so you know how like when you hit a certain altitude, they'll say, this is your captain speaking. Uh, we've now hit our cruising altitude of 30,000 feet. Um, you know, please feel free to, uh, I don't know what they say. Move about the cabin. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're, we're kind of at 30,000 feet, figuratively, with, with Scripture. And tonight, we're now going to come to the New Testament. The New Testament. Uh, the New Testament's about a third of the Bible. It's the shorter of the two Testaments. And the New Testament is where you get to meet Jesus. The New Testament is where you get to meet Jesus. Um, I want you to imagine, you know, so we're talking about stories. Imagine tonight that I told you a story that went like this. Here's the story. Once upon a time, there was a girl named Little Red Riding Hood. One day her mother said, Little Red Riding Hood, please would you take some food to your grandmother who is sick in bed. So Little Red, Little Red Riding Hood, you know, she, she sets out on the woodland path that leads to the, her grandmother's house, but unbeknownst to her, a big bad wolf. There's always a big bad wolf. The big bad wolf sees Little Red Riding Hood approaching, and so he sneaks into the grandmother's house. He devours the grandmother, dresses himself in her clothes, and curls up in her bed and waits for Little Red Riding Hood to arrive. And when Little Red Riding Hood arrives at her grandmother's house, she goes into the bedroom and she says, oh my grandmother, what big eyes you have. And the wolf says, only the better to see you, my dear. And then Little Red Riding Hood says, my grandma, what big hands you have. And the wolf says, only the better to hug you, my dear. And then Little Red Riding Hood says, my grandma, what big teeth you have. And the wolf says, only the better to smile at you, my dear. The end. The end. Now, now, how, 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 how's that for a story? It's kind of a little unsatisfying, isn't it? You're probably thinking, now, wait a minute. Well, you know, what happens next? Does Little Red Riding Hood get eaten? Does she, does she defeat the wolf? You know, does she escape? Or, you know, here, here's another example. Let me try this one on you. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. The end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cliffhanger, right? Like, what, what happened to Humpty Dumpty? It's not a very satisfying story. It ends on a cliffhanger. You know, it's, it, it's almost not even a story. It's almost nonsensical because there's no resolution. There's no conclusion. And what we miss when we read Scripture is that without Jesus... The Bible would be that kind of story. I mean, in my Bible, in fact, here, let me just pull it out. Um, here's my little Bible. fits in my back pocket. There is only one page, one page between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's the page that says the New Testament. <laughs> the New Testament on it. But in reality, that single page is actually a placeholder for 400 years of silence. Because between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there were 400 years where God didn't speak. 
Um, 400 years of a cliffhanger. 400 years of Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, the end. And the cliffhanger in the Bible goes like this. So here's, you know, here's the Old Testament, the whole story of the Old Testament. God makes a perfect world. Man wrecks the perfect world. God promises to send a Messiah, you know, a rescuer, a savior, to set everything right in the broken world. And several thousand years later, nothing is right. The world is wrecked. The Messiah hasn't come. And it just ends. It just ends. There's no resolution. There's no conclusion. There's no nothing. It barely feels like a story at all. And in fact, the last word of the Old Testament, if you look at the last word of the book of Malachi, it's the word curse. And it's a reminder that the curse that started way back at the fall in Genesis 3 is still hovering over humanity. Without Jesus, there is no story at all. Were it not for the New Testament, the part of the Bible that we're looking at now that tells of the coming of Jesus, you know, who he is, what he did, what he said, the Bible would just be an utterly nonsensical and utterly unsatisfying book. But what we're going to see tonight is that the New Testament ties all the threads together. You know, for example, uh, if you've ever seen the back of a rug, you know, if you've taken like a, a carpet or a rug and you flipped it over, you know, what is it? It's just a bunch of knotted, ugly, lumpy threads. There's no pattern. There's no beauty to it. But if you flip it over, it's a masterpiece. All of the threads come together. All of, of the different colors form a pattern, form a picture, form something beautiful. The Old Testament is like the backside of the rug. And Jesus is the one who flips it over. Jesus is the one in whom all of the threads come together. And I want to introduce us to the New Testament tonight by having us look at a passage that shows how the threads come together. So um, I've got another thing to pass out. Um, somewhere, I think, is the handout with our chapter on it. Um, is that somewhere? <laughs> I know it's somewhere because Candace said it got put somewhere. Oh, there it is. Yeah, thank you, Tara, for helping pass those out. So tonight we're looking at the Matthew chapter 1, the very first chapter in the New Testament. Um, and so all I'm going to do tonight is just kind of help introduce this chapter, and then it'll um, be something that you can study a little bit more in small groups this evening. But as we look at this chapter, um, just a couple of things that I want to have you notice tonight. Um, first of all, just I want you to notice that there are at least three ways in this chapter that the threads come together. Three ways. Um, there's the Abraham way, number one. There's the David way, and then there's the Isaiah way. <laughs> Abraham way, David way, Isaiah way. So uh, if you've got it in front of you, I know it's still going around. I want you to just notice the very first verse. And in fact, um, if someone's got it there, uh, if, you, if you've got the first verse there, just someone shout it out. Read the first verse for us. Okay, so here's your first surprise. Um, it's been 400 years of silence. God has been silent for 400 years. Uh, finally, God speaks through Jesus, and Matthew gets to be the very first word. He's the very first book in the New Testament. And how does he start out his very first book? <laughs> he starts it out with a genealogy. <laughs> 
Now, um, typically, the stereotype is that genealogies are the boring parts of the Bible. They're the crispy pages of your Bible, the parts that you skip over. But no, 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 no. The genealogies can sometimes be the most important part. And this is especially true here. And in this genealogy, you'll notice that there are two people who are singled out for special attention. It's Abraham and it's David. It's Abraham and it's David. So the first way that you see Jesus tile the threads together is the Abraham way. Abraham, why is Abraham mentioned in this genealogy? Well, it's because if you go back to the very, very first book of the Bible, you'll know that Abraham is the one that God promises is going to be the, the, the founder of the family that's going to save the world. So I'm going to flip back here to Genesis chapter 12. And maybe you remember when we looked at this you know, a number of weeks ago. But God comes to this man named Abraham. Abraham is kind of just this random guy, but God comes to him. God chooses him. And he tells Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And what that means is that someone from Abraham's family is going to be the one to bless all the other families. Every single human who's ever lived is going to be blessed through Abraham. So when Matthew introduces Jesus, and he says that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, all of the alarm bells would be going off in the mind of any Jewish reader who would ever read this. Similarly with David, look at, uh, go back to the book of Jeremiah if you've got a Bible in front of you. In the book of Jeremiah, there was a prophecy uh, that was made about King David. This is Jeremiah 23, verses, uh, verse 5. And the prophecy says, The days are coming when I will, uh, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. So if you were listening carefully, David is mentioned in that prophecy. It says that God is going to raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely. And all, you know, the figurative language there about the branch, all that's basically saying the Messiah is going to be a son of David. The Messiah is going to come from the family of David. And David is from the family of Abraham. So, go back to Matthew. What's the very first verse of Matthew chapter 1? The very first verse of Matthew chapter 1 is, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So I hope you can see why genealogies matter. What Matthew is doing is he's trying to help you see that Jesus is the other side of the rug. Jesus is all of the threads coming together, ticking off one after one, the prophecies that spoke of the Messiah. And then one last one. If you go toward the very end of the chapter, in verse 22, this is the story of how Jesus was born. Verse 22, uh, this is after the story is recounted of Mary, who's a virgin, who's unmarried, having the Holy Spirit come upon her, so that Jesus would be born um, of a virgin. And it says in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
And that was a prophecy that had been given by the prophet Isaiah more than 800 years before Jesus came. So now you've got not just the Abraham way, not just the David way, but now you've got the Isaiah way, where now Matthew is trying to just take you through all these different places, all these different prophecies that spoke of who the Messiah is going to be. And here he is being introduced, and all the alarm bells are going off because ding, 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 Jesus ticks off each and every one of them. So as you're studying this passage tonight, don't just kind of gloss over the, the genealogy. In fact, there's actually some kind of juicy details that you can discover if you study this genealogy carefully. So let me just kind of flag that up for you. Don't skip over all the names. <laughs> and then um, the last thing I want to do, just to kind of help cue up this passage for you guys to look at tonight in groups, um, you know, those are three ways that Jesus ties some of the threads together. But what does that mean for us? You know, what, what, why is it so significant? Why is it actually so, um, I think, like transformative and powerful that when the New Testament begins, you see Jesus bringing all these threads together into one. <clears throat> Two implications I want to just suggest to you. Number one, um, you know, remember I said that this actually comes after 400 years of silence. Uh, 400 years of waiting. There may very well be uh, many of us who have had experience with what it means to wait. Uh, maybe you feel like you're kind of waiting for... I don't know, like kind of God to begin to change something in your life. Uh, maybe you're someone here tonight who says, man, I know I really want to be married and I'm not. And you feel like you're waiting on God to, to, to help see marriage become some you know, part of your life. Um, you know, I don't know what it might be. <clears throat> but one of the things that's really encouraging about Matthew chapter 1 is that Matthew chapter 1 shows that waiting is part and parcel of how God works in and through those who love him. If God is putting you in a season of waiting, that very well may be not because you've like done something wrong and now he's hanging you out to dry. It could very well be because you're actually walking in the center of his will. <laughs> now, you know, I'm not trying to put a hard and fast rule out there about that, but Matthew chapter one shows that waiting is something that God's, that is normal for the people of God. And the thing that's also really neat about this chapter <clears throat> is that God doesn't have us wait forever. That once these 400 years of silence are over, Jesus comes on the scene and suddenly the rug gets flipped over. And suddenly you begin to see that all throughout this long, long, long history of the Old Testament, God was weaving a masterpiece. When God speaks, everything changes. And you might be looking at your life and you might be looking at the backside of the rug. You might be looking at the backside of your life and all you can see are all these different, you know, knots and lumps and, 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 and just, you know, a bunch of ugliness. I want to tell you that God, with the snap of a finger, can speak and can flip over the rug. And all of that can be changed into a masterpiece. So don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. We're not going to necessarily see all of the ways that the threads come together on this side of eternity. But one day we will. Because God makes masterpieces. And in fact, that's the second thing that uh, comes out of this chapter. Um, the second implication is that God is a God who makes masterpieces out of our mess-ups. God is a God who makes masterpieces out of our mess-ups. When you study this genealogy tonight, I want to encourage you to actually take note of some of the people who are in here. 
Um, just let me flag up one example for you. If you look down at verse 10, one of the people that is included in Jesus' genealogy is a man named Manasseh. Manasseh was a king of Israel. His story is told in 2 Kings chapter 21. You might even go back and look at that chapter tonight just to you know, get a little snapshot of who this guy was. He reigned as king over Israel for 55 years, and he was one of the most wicked men recorded in all of the Old Testament. And he's in Jesus' genealogy. You know, back then, a genealogy is more significant than it is to us today. Your genealogy kind of represented your identity. You know, the, the quality of people that you had in your lineage was sort of your pedigree. So the fact that God has chosen to include in the genealogy of Jesus a whole bunch of screw-ups, mess-ups, and misfits says something about the way that he interacts with us. You might have a whole bunch of mess-ups and screw-ups and sin, maybe not just in your genealogy, but in your life, the pedigree of your life, your, you know, your, your record. And I want to tell you that in the same way that God can bring his perfect son out of one big train wreck of a family history, he can bring a masterpiece. He can bring his redemption. He can bring his goodness and glory out of the train wreck of your life and your screw-ups and your story. And in fact, all of Jesus' life was a demonstration of that because ultimately, this chapter is about the birth of Jesus. But the rest of the New Testament focuses on the death of Jesus. Jesus came to die. He came to lay down his life as a suffering servant. And he did that because he wanted to substitute himself for us so that, he, so that we wouldn't have to bear the punishment for sin that we deserved. <clears throat> you know, there was a, a guy once who was a secret service guard and he threw himself in front of the U.S. president as someone was trying to assassinate the president. And, you know, you think, wow, what a brave thing to do. But, you know, it makes sense, right? It was his job. You know, his job was to defend the president. And the president was the president. He was the most powerful person on the face of the earth at that time, the most important person. Jesus threw himself in front of us, took the bullet for us, not because we were great. We were his enemies. We were the ones who had nailed him to the cross. We were the ones who had rejected him and rebelled against him. He laid down his life for people who were totally unworthy, totally undeserving. And that's why the gospel is so good. Jesus laid down his life for people who don't deserve it. So if you feel like you're unworthy of God's love, if you feel like you're undeserving to know God in your life, you're the exact kind of person that Jesus came to die for. Jesus said, I didn't come to be a doctor for the healthy, but for the sick. The healthy don't think they need a doctor, but the sick know they need a doctor. That's the kind of God that Jesus is. So the rest of the book is all about his mission, his mission to lay down his life, to die. And you think, you know, if Jesus is the Messiah, how nutty, how crazy that the story would result in him dying. I mean, sounds like another cliffhanger. But God was able to take the worst evil, the worst tragedy, which was the unjust death of his perfect son on the cross, and he was able to bring out of that the salvation of humanity because three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead as a way of saying his sacrifice was the perfect sacrifice to make us right before a holy God. 
And if God can bring that kind of masterpiece out of that kind of mess, if he can bring Jesus out of this train wreck of a genealogy, then there is absolutely nothing, no sin in your life that God cannot redeem and restore if we turn to him in repentance and in faith. So if you're here tonight, sorry, no, I'm preaching. (laughs) If you're here tonight and you know that there's sin in your life, don't let unbelief keep you from turning to Jesus. Don't let the belief that you're disqualified, you screwed up too many times, keep you from coming to Jesus. And come to Jesus. You know, if there's sin in your life tonight, you need to repent of that. And come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm going to lay it all down before you. I want to just throw myself at your feet even though I know I'm a mess and I have nothing to offer you. The Bible says that the sacrifice that God will always accept is the sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart. So, um, do that. (laughs) Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you that the introduction of Jesus into the story um, not only ties all the threads together, but it does it in such, an un- such a surprising way uh, because you take what is broken and you use it to bring glory into the world. Um, you use it to bring glory to yourself. Um, Lord, I pray that um, even just through like a genealogy that you would inspire us um, to just see the gospel again and to realize that no matter where we're at tonight, you're a God who's abundantly able to save and to restore. And Lord, if we're in need of saving and restoring, would we just repent and turn to you? Would we just take all of the sin and the mess and the brokenness of our lives and lay it at your feet? Uh, We don't want to just mess around with information and just have our heads stuffed full of knowledge. Lord, we want to actually have a a living, breathing reality um, of knowing you, experiencing you, um, actually living a life that is worthwhile and that is truly life. So Lord, um, just would you meet us tonight as we look at this passage? Um, help us, help us to really know you and really live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.